Jesus spoke to the crowds about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed to be cured. As the day was drawing to a close, the twelve approached him and said, Dismiss the crowd so that they may go to the surrounding villages and farms and find lodging and provisions, for we are here in a deserted place. He said to them, Give them some food yourselves. They replied, Five loaves and two fish are all we have, unless we ourselves go and buy food for all these people. Now the men were numbered about five thousand. Then he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty. They did so and made them all sit down. Then taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he said the blessing over them, broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the crowd. They all ate and were satisfied. And when the leftover fragments were picked up, they filled twelve wicker baskets. The Gospel of the Lord. I grew up Catholic. I grew up going to Mass every single Sunday at 7.30 a.m. Very important that we needed to get Mass in so that we could do chores the rest of the day, which made Sunday a not enjoyable day. Uh, Waking up early and then having to do chores or whatnot. I mean, obviously that's an exaggeration of it all. But but I didn't enjoy Mass very much. And, And, you know, part of it, my experience was, is that half of it was the same every single time. And that there wasn't necessarily a strong connection with the prayers, the priest was saying it, and whatnot, and, and I didn't really understand what was going on, so what was, what was the point? Um, I went to college, and I was blessed, and also I think uh, cursed in some ways, to go to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Because as awesome as it is, it's also a horrible place. It's a good place to be from, not at. Uh, especially your freshman year, where they put a huge amount of stress on you, a huge amount of, uh, uh, they just supervise you, you can't take any naps, you can't listen to any music, watch any movies, you have to run in the hallways, you have to have your door open at 7.30 a.m. You have to do all these things, plus a full load of work and everything else and these other obligations. And so when you're underneath a huge amount of stress, you're normally not very happy. You know, you're not joking around. You're not, uh, not just having fun. And for myself, that was, that was definitely true. I was underneath a lot of stress, and I wasn't depressed, but I certainly wasn't uh, enjoying my life at that point. Um, one of the chaplains mentioned that there was daily mass offered every day after lunch. We got a dispensation from our hour fast. And so me and my buddy looked at each other and were like, yeah, sure, let's, let's go. The nice thing about the chapel is that it was away from the upperclassmen. Well, the upperclassmen might be there, but they weren't going to yell at you there. And so you could go there and just relax. And the stress, you know, was able to go away. And, and even on occasion, I would close my eyes very piously and take a nap, which I wasn't otherwise allowed to do. Now, I wasn't going to daily mass because I wanted to pray. I wasn't going there because I loved God. I was going there mostly to get away from a worse thing, right? But it was there that one of the days, after a few months of going on occasions, not every single day, but on occasion, I was walking out of Mass, and I noticed that I had a giant grin on my face, just ear to ear as I'm just walking along. Like, wait, 
why am I smiling right now? And I, and I thought about it because I was like, well, I haven't smiled. It felt very strange because I hadn't smiled in a while, right? Or at least authentically smiled. You know, where it, where it feels more than just your face. You know, where there was a peace. There was, there was something more there. And I, I thought, wait, what did I do differently earlier today? Nothing. Uh, I still had to wake up, you know, at 6 o'clock in the morning and go whatever else. And I had classes and was, you know, uh, harassed. Not really. I mean, just like whatever. Um, her hat, uh, whatever you call it. Um, and then I went to, went to Mass, and then I'm going to a class that I don't like. And so, like, nothing was different. And as soon as I ruled out those other things that, you know, kind of change and, you know, change your mood uh, from day to day, it just clicked. And it was just very clear that I was smiling because, and the peace that I experienced, because I had just received Jesus in the Eucharist. Now, at that point, it wasn't Mass, it wasn't prayer, it was the Eucharist. And I didn't know what that meant. Even though that I went to Mass every single Sunday. Even though that I went to Catholic school education. And I'm sure that someone at some point, my mother, my grandmother, you know, teachers, told me about the true presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. I never believed or understood or took it to heart or ever experienced it. And so it was always just a piece of bread. So something always is something special, but not really that special. Like, we don't need to do it every single Sunday, right? That was at least my thought, right? Uh, It's special, but not that special. But after that experience, I knew that there was something more there than I understood or knew. And I started to being open to what it was. And so I started going to daily Mass every single day. Not to hear the priest speak, not to hear the readings, not really to even pray, but to receive the Eucharist. Because whatever that was, that was something that was worth my time. Now... I'll say that I never experienced that joy, that smile, that peace again from the Eucharist. It, it didn't come every single time that I received the Eucharist, but I still knew that there was something happening, that that was an outward manifestation of something else that was happening interiorly. And I started to talk more and started to say, like, what is the Eucharist? And I remember coming up on a few occasions of John chapter 6, and there was even a sign at one point, like John chapter 6, the true presence. And I was like, what, what does that even mean? And so I, I pulled out a Bible and I'm like, well, what is John chapter 6? It's like, oh, it's one of the Gospels. Okay, well, where is that in the Bible? I don't even know. I need to find it. And so finally found John chapter 6 and, you know, found the chapter. And I started reading and I was just blown away. I was like, wait, Jesus says like, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood unless you shall not have life in, within you. And I'm like, whoa, did this really happen? Like, I've never heard this before. Now, I'd heard it before, but I had never cared before. I had never listened before. And so that was the first time that I read that I, that I cared what it actually said and that it actually affected me. And I actually said, wow, this, there is something more in the Eucharist That Jesus, it's not something that's just made up in the last few hundred years. It's not just Catholic fanatical, you know, uh, bringing up or or just kind of like, you know, fanatic, you know, making up something that, you know, was something just really simple and they've just kind of built it up into something more. 
Jesus clearly in the scriptures in his life says that he will give a gift of something more. And for myself, that was important for me to continue to understand, continue to to drive, continue to understand in the midst of it all. But that wasn't quite enough. It was like, well, there's a lot of people who read Scripture in John chapter 6 and just say, well, it's just spirit and life. You know, it's, it's not really his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Well, maybe that's just something that we've thought in the last hundred years. In fact, we get accused of that often, right, as Catholics, of making up stuff, right? Well, that's not really in Scripture. That's not within Scripture. It's like, well, actually, it, it does point to in Scripture. We hear in the second reading that St. Paul talks about it. He is handing on to the Corinthians what was handed on to him from the Lord, that Jesus took this and said, this is my body, this is my blood. That we see in the early church a great devotion to the Eucharist, that actually we have saints who died for the Eucharist. St. Tarsius is one of them. But we also have, thankfully, some writings from the early church um, of people who we call the church fathers, who wrote, uh, were extremely influential, and they themselves also spoke about the Eucharist. And so I'd like to read a few of these uh, quotes from these different church fathers and kind of give you a little bit of context to them. Um, The first one is St. Ignatius of Antioch, and St. Ignatius of Antioch is awesome. He writes uh, multiple letters on his way to martyrdom. So he's captured, he's accused of being a Christian, and then taken to go be martyred. And he's, uh, he writes these beautiful letters, and, and one of the letters that he writes in 110 A.D. says, I have no taste for corruptible food, nor for the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ. Now that seems... Seems like he he understood what the Eucharist was. Now, he wouldn't have been able to explain that the Eucharist transubstantiates, you know, so that the substance of bread changes into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. But he knew that it wasn't just a symbol. That Jesus had given us something more. Next one, St. Justin Martyr, who writes in 151 AD. And St. Justin Martyr is beautiful because he was actually the disciple of St. Polycarp, who was the disciple of St. John the Evangelist, who wrote the Gospel, who was with Jesus. And so here we only have three people removed from Jesus himself. And he says, We call this food Eucharist, and no one else is permitted to partake of it except one who believes our teaching to be true. And we still hold to this, right? We still hold to this that no one should receive the Eucharist unless they they believe the teachings of the church to be true. That this truly is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe that, well, well, we also ask you not to receive. And this uh, actually happened uh, at a wedding that I was just back out at the Naval Academy for. And people were like, oh, it's a beautiful wedding, but I still don't understand that communion thing. Why can't we receive the Eucharist? We can't receive the Eucharist because you don't truly believe what we profess it to believe. And from the very earliest church in 151 AD, that is the case and it continues to be the case because it is such a precious gift. Such a precious gift that we don't want to withhold, but we also don't want to force upon somebody. And we don't want to desecrate or just take as something as ordinary bread or just a symbol of Jesus Christ, who in the very earliest church knew that it was something more. He continues on. 
uh, St. Justin Martyr. Jesus Christ, our Savior, was made incarnate by the Word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation. So too, as we have been taught, the food that has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer, setting down, set down by Him, Jesus, is both the flesh and blood of the incarnated Jesus. And so we very very clearly see here that there's already a developed theology in 151 AD. And it continues with St. Cyprian of Carthage in 251. He writes, he's he's a bishop in Carthage in northern Africa. And during that time, there was a lot of persecutions. And so Christians would say uh, during the persecution, Hey, no, 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 I'm not really Christian. Uh, I was just kidding about that. And they would sacrifice to idols. And then after the persecution was done, they would come back to Christianity and say, Well, you know, I was weak, but now I you know, want to be back. And St. Cyprian needed to address that problem. Now, there's not a problem in terms of being able to come back and repent of your sins, but there were certain people who came back to the Eucharist, came back to communion with the church, even though that they didn't repent from their sins. And he references St. Paul here in Scripture about what that does, where we don't repent of our sins and we try to receive the Eucharist. St. Cyprian in 251 AD says... Paul threatens, moreover, the stubborn and forward and denounces them, saying, Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. All these warnings being scorned and despised, lapsed Christians will often take communion before their sin is expiated, before confession has been made for their crime, before their conscience has been purged by sacrifice and by the hand of the priest, before the offense and the angry and threatening Lord has been appeased. And so violence is done to Jesus' body and blood, and they sinned against their Lord more with their hand and mouth than when they denied their Lord. So we see here, if it was just a symbol of bread and wine, why is St. Cyprian, why is St. Paul, why is St. Cyprian so worried about those receiving the Eucharist when, when they, don't, they don't care, right? He says that actually denying Jesus is less of a sin than denying Jesus and then receiving the Eucharist. And so we see here the great significance and the importance of it. Lastly, I'd like to uh, read St. Cyril of Jerusalem, who writes in 350 A.D. He says, As the bread and wine of the Eucharist, before the invocation of the Trinity, which is the holy and worthy and holy and worthy of adoration, were simply bread and wine. After the invocation, the bread becomes the body of Christ and the wine the blood of Christ. And then he cons- says, Consider, therefore, the bread and wine are not bare elements, for they are, according to the Lord's declaration, the body and blood of Christ. For even though sense suggests this to you, let faith establish you. And so we realize in the early church, it wasn't as if they were um, just ignoring of the senses and like, oh, well, we just magically believe that this happens. They understood the difficulty of believing that bread becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. But they saw in Jesus' words, in St. Paul's words in the early church, that there was something more. The only people who denied that the Eucharist was the body and blood of Christ were those who denied that Jesus was either God or that he became truly human. 
They denied his incarnation and thus denied the flesh that we, that Jesus became and took on flesh and blood. For the first 1,500 years of the church, there are only small groups of heretics who deny other essential parts of Christianity that deny the true presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And so we ask ourselves, is this unreasonable for us to believe that the Eucharist is something more than just bread and wine? And I think even though that it defies logic, even though that we can't say with our senses that it is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, we have good logic and good reason, good history, good faith, to be able to say that with faith, I believe that Jesus Christ has given us a sacrament through the church, through the hands of the priests, to be able to receive Jesus Christ, to be able to adore Jesus Christ here in the Eucharist. We, of course, have a history of the church for 2,000 years, but we also have beautifully a history here right at Our Lady of Lourdes. The fact that we have an adoration chapel where people, rightfully so, should think that we're crazy waking up in the middle of the night to spend an hour in adoration. If that's not Jesus Christ, we're crazy. In fact, we're not just crazy, we're idolaters, right? Believing that and worshiping a piece of bread or it truly is what we say it is. It truly is what Jesus says it is. This is my body. This is my blood. But we also have other examples here at Our Lady of Lords. The first pastor, Father Joseph, uh, and I don't know exactly how to say his name. It's spelled like Dole, but Dole, something like that. Yeah. Father Joseph was the first pastor, and he was a zealous priest, and he would have Eucharistic processions. But in 1895, uh, he was sick in the rectory, and the church caught fire. March 19, 19, or 1895, over 100 years ago. And while, uh, while the church was on fire, Father Joseph rose from his bed, and he ran to the church to save the Blessed Sacrament and other religious articles. He would thankfully be able to get out of the fire, but after inhaling so much smoke, he was even weaker than he was before. He was helped to the convent, and for the next two weeks was on his deathbed. And he would die two weeks after. Certainly partly because of his sickness that he already had, but that was aggravated by the smoke inhalation. And then I, I kind of see as this beautiful witness of his belief and his great reverence for Jesus Christ, truly present in the Eucharist. That we have somebody who's died for the Eucharist here. His, his uh, grave is just outside where the big cross is. I encourage us to be able to recognize his sacrifice that he made for the early church here, but also for the Blessed Sacrament. Later, uh, after Mass, um, after this long homily is over with, um, which could be much, much longer. I mean, we could speak for hours about the Eucharist. I mean, it's just amazing, the source and summit of our faith. Uh, but after we receive communion, we'll get ready for a Eucharistic procession that we ourselves will also adore the Lord. Now, we always adore the Lord at the, at the Mass when the priest holds forth the Eucharist at two different times, after the consecration and also, um, also when he says, Behold the Lamb of God right before we receive it. So we have times of adoration within that, but we also should have times outside of Mass as well to adore the Lord in the Eucharist. And so we'll be doing a procession, hopefully outside, although it looks like it's raining. It held off 
until right before Mass. So uh, we'll probably be doing it inside, but we'll be going in procession and praising the Lord. Ideally, we'd be able to do it outside and be able to show forth the world our faith in this Eucharist. That this sets us apart, that, that Jesus has given us this great sacrament, and that we should recognize how beautiful it is by our actions, by the way that we reverently receive, and the way that we believe and act by waking up in the middle of the night, to, or just spending an hour with the Lord, you know, taking time away from our normal day to be able to adore the Lord. And so we'll make that opportunity after to continue to help our faith. I hope all of you have had an experience with the Eucharist where you've been able to see that the Eucharist is something more than just ordinary bread and wine. But even if you haven't, we can still always have faith. And I recognize I'm very grateful for that gift that I received over 10 years ago to be able to realize that the Eucharist is something more. But I don't place my faith and the Eucharist on that one experience. My faith is much deeper at this point because it's rooted in Scripture, it's rooted in the Church, it's rooted in Jesus Christ and what He says, not just what I experience. I place my faith in Jesus Christ, not just on that one day and that one experience. So even if you've had an experience, I hope that you have to be able to have a greater faith, but we can always come and say, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That we can be like doubting Thomas and say, well, Jesus, I don't really, you know, unless I see him, I'm not going to believe. To say, uh, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God, when we see him in the Eucharist. And so may we have that great faith that Jesus Christ has given us, that great gift of the Eucharist, and continue to have faith in Jesus Christ so that we might be able to receive that grace, to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this life, and be with him for eternity.